Hello, today is Tuesday, April 7th, 2020. You're listening to the We Be Imagining podcast, episode one, a podcast about the intersection of race, technology, surveillance, and COVID-19, although we might expand to other topics as we move forward. On March 19th, I interviewed Dr. Chris Gilliard and Dr. Jasmine McNeely. Due to some technical issues, we are almost three weeks later, re-recording the intros. Um, due to the shelter-in, I con- currently have a podcast studio set up under my daughter's uh, loft bed. Um, but bear with us, and I think that you're in for a good interview. Dr. Chris Gilliard is a writer, professor, and speaker. His scholarship concentrates on digital privacy and the intersections of race, class, and technology. He is an advocate for critical and equity-focused approaches to tech and education. His work has been featured in the Chronicle of Higher Ed, EduCause Review, Fast Company Vice, and Real Life Magazine. Jasmine McNeely is an attorney and an assistant professor in the Department of Telecommunication at the University of Florida, where she is an affiliate of the STEM Translational Research Center and the UF Informatics Institute. Her research investigates issues of ownership, access, creation, and control of information in its various forms in an attempt to understand the conflicts and solutions, both cultural and structural, that arise in response to these conflicts. And thank you. When did you first become aware of the scale of the impact that this was going to have on your life in the world? Mm-hmm. Um, go ahead. Yeah. So in early March, I was supposed to go to the American Physical Society conference as a speaker. And we'd been getting messages up until that time, you know, uh, yeah, no, we're still going to have the conference. You know, we're taking safety precautions. We're putting out extra hand sanitizer. We're going to tell people to, you know, um, not shake hands, all that good stuff. And then the night before the conference was supposed to happen, I was supposed to fly in. It was a huge email that was sent out saying basically the conference was over, that they weren't going to have the conference. And just to give you the scale of that, there are supposed to be around a couple thousand people flying into that conference in Denver. And uh, this was the night before it all started. And so they just shut it down. And so while I had heard of the coronavirus, obviously it's been in the news, talking about China and then Italy and, and various parts of Asia. And then maybe some of the people who had been in those places who were coming back uh, in the United States, it didn't really hit me that, oh, this is going to be really big until they started shutting things down that were of such grand scale as uh, this like once or twice a year conference with so many people flying in. Um, so that happened at the, the very beginning of March, end of, end of uh, February. And then things just like dominoes started shutting down. Uh, the university started uh, paying attention, sending out those emails. So we're paying attention to what's happening. We don't know. We're going to shut down study abroad in Italy. We're going to, you know, take all these precautions. And then in this past week, obviously following um, other schools, everything moved online, all the students, except for those who... Um, you know, are unhoused or international students. Everybody had to clear out the dorm. They told people to go home, work from home, do whatever. Um, so, yeah. And are you teaching this semester? I am teaching this semester. Um, 
so my class, thankfully my class I was teaching was online already, so it's not a scale, but then I have to also think about, there are other classes that students were taking that were not online. Um, in addition, this is, these are strange days, right? So we have to think about, people are worried about stuff that has nothing to do with academia, nothing to do with, you know, trying to graduate, but everything to do with, you know, quite frankly, not getting sick, making sure their parents don't get sick or their relatives don't get sick. Things like, where am I going to live? Uh, things like, oh, my job that pays my rent that allows me to buy food may be closed as well. And so, you know, I think as professors, we have to take that into account too, that, you know, your class is probably not the most important thing on people's agendas right now. Um, other things are. And could you talk a little bit about what this look, how this unfolded in Florida specifically? I mean, interestingly, I think of it as more, maybe erroneously, of more of a conservative state than New York, but they actually oh, closed the right. public, schools, public right. schools prior to New York City. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, like, do you have any sense of like how many people th still thought it was a hoax and how many people were taking it really seriously? So I'll, I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example. I, I got into an Uber to go to a eye doctor appointment um, in the last two weeks. And the Uber driver is really nice, but she got to talking about the coronavirus. And she was like, you know, I, I keep this bottle of rubbing alcohol to spray stuff down, but I only do it for my uh, riders to make them feel safe. But really, the coronavirus is just the flu. And, you know, you know, it's no big deal and things like that. And this is post- you know, everything we've seen from China, everything we've seen from Italy right now. And I was, you know, all I could do is say, you know, nod my head and say, wow. Uh, <laughs> so while that is a significant, I think, strain, I think there's also some people here who are saying, look, this is serious. Um, the University of Florida, for example, is a, uh, a research hospital. Um, and so... I think when uh, numbers like from Imperial College and from other places start coming out and infectious diseases like results start um, coming out, I think uh, Alachua County, uh, where the University of Florida sits, they'll listen. Um, you're right to think that Florida is a, a more conservative state. At the same time, I think because of the sheer volume of people we get into the state, whether it's tourists, whether it's college students, there's kind of a duty to do some public health um, triage before things get really bad. It started, I think some of the first cases in the state of Florida were more to the south, which are more touristy areas, um, like thinking beaches and things like that. Um, and so when that happened, I think people really started to open their eyes. Not everybody, but some people did. And what what does this look like for you right now? Are you going, are you completely staying home? Are you still getting outside? Um, you know, I think that there's mostly a consensus that we should all stay at home, but what that looks like for people is very different. Um, and so for you, how much do you get to leave your apartment or have you made decisions about who you will socialize with or um, how are you getting through this moment of social distancing slash isolation? 
Yeah, so while I'm not uh, having uh, <laughs> play dates with my adult friends and stuff like that, <laughs> um, I do go outside, uh, ride my bike. It's 80 degrees down here right now. So um, I think going outside, as long as you're not um, just congregating with people, uh, is a good thing. I'm thinking also for mental health reasons as well for people. Like staying inside, staying home is one thing, but staying inside is a totally different thing. So I think you can go outside, you can sit outside, um, maybe go for a bike ride. Just don't um, be having very close conversations <laughs> with, <laughs> with people at all. Yeah. And Chris, could you share a little bit about when you first became aware of the magnitude of the epidemic and the and the responses that were being put into place? Like what that looked like for you? Yeah, um, you know, I mean, I, I think uh, Michigan, for the most part, has been very uh, fairly proactive in comparison to a lot of places, anyway. Uh, but I think it's about two weeks ago now, two and a half weeks, when I started thinking. Um, you know, wondering what my school was going to do, what my institution was going to do, as we, I could see other places were starting to shut down, you know, particularly California. And then some of the larger institutions in Michigan, I think that that Wednesday um, started started to close down. Um, you know, I, I, try, I talked to students in my class uh, that Tuesday, but at that point, I don't think it seemed like a reality to most people. Uh so we had classes normal that Tuesday, uh, but by Thursday, uh, you know, we had announced kind of a, you know, the administration announced the, the, the pressing the pause button on, on classes and things for a week or for 10 days while everyone uh, moved to online. Um, so I, I think like everyone I've been kind of been watching um, from afar, you know, developments in other countries, but. I guess I was a little surprised at the how swiftly things changed, you know, um, that in a matter of days it went from people, maybe not uh, a lot of people, or at least um, a lot of people that, uh, at my institution or my state paying close attention to things uh, completely being shut down. And do you have any sense of what was the tenor of the reaction just on from students or people in your neighborhood? Were people thinking that it's a hoax or were they thinking or were they taking it seriously and, you know, worried about their own health? Or do you have any sense of kind of in your area what the reaction was? Well, in my area, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit hard to tell because uh, the grocery stores were fairly normal. Um, and that's one way to, to uh, I gauged it. I went to the grocery store that Thursday and it was busy. It was, you know, I would maybe describe it as like the, uh, the day before Thanksgiving or something like that, but they weren't out of anything. People weren't, uh, piling their carts to the ceiling. Uh, you know, I waited in line maybe two or three minutes. And so at that point, so this would have been a, a week ago, uh, uh, at that point, it still didn't seem real, I think, to a lot of people. A lot of people were shot, were still getting food from the, uh, from the salad bar and, you know, the, the, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, from the salad bar, you know, soup and salad bar. A lot of people, because I live near uh, a Ford, the Ford headquarters. 
and a lot of people go to this grocery store for lunch. And so a lot of people are going to the salad bar, getting soup and salad, getting their lunch from the uh, prepared foods counter as they do uh, normally. So there was kind of a mixture at that point. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, the stratification of the response in New York, I think it's pretty enormous. A week ago, I went to Costco um, and there was a line of cars for three city blocks to get in. Um, mm. So it was definitely a palpable sense of panic. But I would say about a month ago, private K through 12 schools had already been hiring outside consultants to um, pull the trigger on distance learning plans and provide professional development to the teachers to be able to implement this, anticipate at least for the next two months. Um, whereas public schools very much until the last moment were like, we have no idea what we're going to do. Um, and then, you know, our state was definitely an outlier and waiting to the last minute to close the schools when we have schools that, you know, more than 2000 kids attend simultaneously. Um, and I think there was just like a sense of helplessness because they were sending home emails about how to cope with coronavirus and how to communicate to your kids when the schools were open and the libraries were closed. And even the mayor himself was working from home while he was telling kids to still go to school. Um, so it was definitely like a huge gap in the different types of responses. Um, and I think for a lot of wealthier people, they had the ability to start working from home. But for a lot of people in my family and like my friends that are in the service industry and kind of living in the day to day, First of all, just the sense of time to project into the future is kind of abstract. And people, I mean, I still have people who are working um, in my life. And it's a little hard to how to advise them because, you know, they have to feed their kids. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I do notice that stratification quite a bit. Uh, a lot of my friends are in the service industry, uh, uh, you know, coffee houses or bars and restaurants. Uh, quite a few of my friends have been laid off. Um, mm. And I think one of the things, sort of interesting thing about Detroit, because as late as Sunday, uh, the grocery, again, the, kind of using the grocery store as a measurement, was was fairly normal. My friend went shopping and, and FaceTimed me while he was there. And the only thing they were out of was pasta and meat. Um, <laughs> and everything else, I mean, they had everything else, you know, rice, beans, peanut butter. Uh, but I think one of the interesting kind of things this illustrates for Detroit, as opposed to some other metro areas, is how spread out Detroit is. So there's probably five or six grocery stores within a mile and a half of me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think that's true. Um, you know, I mean, but it doesn't, those stores don't serve, you know, hundreds of thousands of people um, or millions of people for that matter uh, in the way that because of the lack of density in, in Metro Detroit, um, population density in the same way that some other places have. Yeah, there's definitely a way in which the response is geographically bounded that I think it's gonna, that's playing out differently in terms of the differential response to like quarantine, lockdown, shelter and measures, but also I think to the kinds of like hyper-local organizing people are gonna have to do um, to kind of make it through this period. I think it's going to look very different somewhere like L.A., where maybe the closest person to you is a five-minute drive versus mm. New York City, where your local network might be somebody who's down your hallway and you have, you know, over 300 people in your high-rise development. Um, 
But I was wondering if we could kind of transition to one of the reasons I was really excited to have you guys on the podcast is, Chris, I followed you for a long time um, on Twitter, and I saw a lot of the threads that you were starting around erosions, around privacy, um, and the influx of not just surveillance, but like citizen demands for surveillance um, during the COVID-19 pandemic and things are moving, you kind of alluded to so rapidly and at just such an accelerated pace. A lot of the foundation for this um, happened way before 2020, way before we knew about the virus. Um, but I just think things are moving at a rapid pace and that's not everyone is like privy to that information. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I, and this is an imprecise met metaphor or an analogy. Uh, so I'm a little bit hesitant to use it, but uh, I think it, it's, it has some purposes. So uh, a lot of people are comparing this to uh, the erosion of rights uh, during and after 9-11. And um, you, the way you can think about it is that, uh, you know, with the Patriot Act and so many other things, that in the midst of a crisis... Uh, we had, um, you know, our country or in the United States has had like, uh, you know, a, there was a, a huge grab in terms of people's rights and, um, you know, in terms of uh, privacy and security and surveillance and things like that. And uh, I, I mean, I think the idea is that, well, I think when people are afraid that the first thing they want is safety, you know, and security. Uh, but unfortunately, we haven't gotten a lot of those rights back, and, and we're still fighting. And by we, I mean, again, citizens, but we could expand that to just anybody living in the country. Um, so we, there, we haven't gotten a lot of those rights back, and it's been a hard slog to kind of chisel away at some of the surveillance mechanisms that were put into place then. And I worry... You know, as I saw the ramp up for this, you know, given that we already have such a huge surveillance mechanism in this country, um, one that I don't think many people, enough people, I should say, pay attention to. So I was worried about how what what that was going to look like in terms of erosion of people's rights, you know, more surveillance, more invasions of privacy, um, and how that would be how people's fear and the promise of safety was going to be used uh, to justify those things. And assuming there's some other side, you know, when we come out of this, and I don't know when that's going to be or what that will look like, but assuming there's some other side, what kind of rights will we have um, had taken away from us? And how would we think about getting those back? And so what I've been really sort of trying to con concerned about or trying to get people to think about or even process myself is how to balance questions like public health and safety with, uh, with questions around people's rights um, and, and how we should think about that now and, and moving forward. And could you highlight some specific examples? Like I know one of the things I had added to your thread on Twitter um, was about 23andMe doing COVID-19 at home testing. Um, but if there's any specific examples of things that you're looking at right now or concerned about, that'd be great if you could share. Well, for instance, uh, you know, so the, the White House had a meeting with a bunch of Silicon Valley folks, you know, including um, representatives of Palantir and 
Clearview AI, Google, Facebook, uh, things like that. Um, and so a lot of these companies, you know, as Silicon Valley is, is known to do, are making promises about their technology and what it can do. For instance, to just um, either track the virus or, or, uh, or identify people who are at risk or who have the virus. Uh, so, for instance, um, um, Palantir, and I don't, I don't know how familiar people are with that company, um, but it's a basically a, a, a kind of like, well, for the interest, for, in the interest of brevity, it's just like a surveillance <laughs> company um, that is it's Peter Thiel's company, and kind of maybe the, one of the best known uses of it is it's used by ICE and Border Patrol to um, track down folks. And so uh, it, I think Silicon Valley is looking at this as an opportunity. You know, AI is the, is the facial recognition company that scrapes people's uh, data from uh, sites like Google and Facebook and things like that. Um, so it's like a sort of promises to be a real-time uh, facial recognition and face surveillance um, app. And so the, I think Silicon Valley is looking at this as an opportunity to get uh, to further entrench their services or enrich themselves uh, by getting more government contracts. You know, there's a company and I, I can't recall the name off the top of my head, but there's a company right now that's saying that they have uh, sort of real time thermal imaging uh, that they say can uh, detect who has, uh, you know, who has the coronavirus, who has COVID-19. Uh, and, you know, again, so a lot of these tech companies are known for making wild promises that they can't deliver on. Uh, and, and they do that in normal times. But uh, I think as, as uh, in this time of crisis, I think um, individuals and institutions and governments are looking for anything that sounds good. Uh, and so, um, I mean, those are a couple of examples. I, I think people are grasping at solutions, um, but for, in a lot of cases, tech companies are using this as a as an opportunity. Um, and that kind of brings me to a question I wanted to ask you, Jasmine, being in the Department of Telecommunications. And, um, you know, I think that one of the one of the big lessons that came out from China is how people organized to also vet information. I mean, there was both a, the Chinese government was suppressing information. And then I think that, you know, the nature of the lockdown made it difficult for people to verify what is real and inaccurate and, and news. And kind of what are you seeing right now um, in this moment as ways in which either misinformation is being propagated or are good examples of how people can help each other determine, um, you know, what, what is accurate and what are at best false promises, particularly as there's a lot of people coming out now saying that they have, um, they're developing vaccines that will be mm. reaching the market any moment. Um, and also just even in New York, there's been a lot of things around the mayor said that there's going to be a shelter in and the governor said that's not true the schools are going to close and they said that's not true then the schools close so i think that people are really looking for information and then it's all being medi mediated on proprietary software right now mm -hmm. um and so kind of what does that mean for communications yeah so i think there's a couple of issues one 
um, with closures of large institutions and places where people can go to get information or places that people trust to give them information. I'm thinking of libraries, for example. I'm thinking of like the memory institutions, the universities, the other places where people go or have at least a, a, a baseline level of trust for them, places they can get information. It's difficult for people to find information that is trustworthy or more trustworthy. Um, I think when uh, people get their information or the majority of their information from social networks, um, whatever those social networks are, it raises the level of um, possible misinformation or disinformation that happens. So if you go on Twitter, um, there's people putting out really important and really trustworthy information, but there's also a significant portion of people and bots or whatever putting out information that's just is factually wrong. I was on a telephone call with my mother, um, and she said, you know, I'll just hold my breath for the 10 seconds to test my <laughs> lung capacity. And I was like, Mom, that, that email... <laughs> It's a fake, like that's a, dis- that's a disinformation campaign. She's like, "What? Where? You know, where are you getting this?" Other people have shared information, like, um, you know, I have a friend at the Pentagon who says such and such and such and such, and it's like, really? Um, do you have a friend at the Pentagon? And <laughs> are they saying this kind of stuff? But I think so. We have a problem that started well before this with both um, very popular nodes, I'm just calling them nodes, both people and institutions who've come out who, who basically you know, have a campaign of disinformation, whether it's just straight up lying to people's faces or taking some truth and adding like falsity to it. Like um, with the cure, the possible cure for coronavirus, people saying, oh, you use the malaria medicine and it's been tested and it's found good results. Well, that's not actually what the, the test results said. They only tested it on 20 people, six people dropped out of the study. Um, the doctor said, you know, obviously this is not generalizable. Uh, we found some pretty decent results for it, but you know, we wanted to share this to get it out there with the rest of the medical establishment. But I think people are looking for information that will help them, right? So there's two issues. There's the popular um, channels through which people get information and whether or not they trust it. But also, I think on the more psychological side, people are looking for like something to give them hope, right? Um, so if I hear about a possible cure, whether it's the, the French doctors or whether it's like Cuba has, you know, developed a cure and the United States is blocking it or something like that, uh, that gives people hope that there's a possibility of, 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 you know, something quick on the horizon that'll stop all this and we won't have to deal with the, the possible ramifications of, um, this disease, but also the the social issues that that come along with it. Um, so yeah. And oh, if you. I could add, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, if I could add one other thing, uh, you know, one of the uh, another kind of tech angle is that a lot of the commercial content moderators are now have now been sent home. Uh, so 
um, Facebook and Twitter, um, which rely in uh, YouTube, uh, you know, uh, which uh, rely on people sitting in, in rooms uh, looking at terrible material uh, hour after hour so that uh, typically we don't have to see it on, on those platforms. Those folks have been sent home. Um, and there's a variety of reasons, according to the platforms, why, why, why those people are not able to work from home. Uh, but so now Facebook and, and the other platforms have moved to uh, a higher degree of algorithmic moderation for mm-hmm. content, which is um, so far has been resulting in some um, interesting and, you know, I, I mean, that's a euphemism. Some interesting and unfortunate uh, fallout, including uh, blocking legitimate news sources of uh, information like mm-hmm. the New York Times or BuzzFeed or Wall Street Journal, things like that. Yeah, I think also that um, what, what you just mentioned there is really important to think about because well before the coronavirus um, and the misinformation, disinformation campaigns, these platforms knew who were uh, the, the, the accounts, the nodes that were putting out just false information all the time. So it's not like this is a new revelation that there's so much false information uh, being spread on social media. It's that our business model wants engagement. And so if we were to have deleted those accounts, kick them off, um, you know, that would tank some engagement and maybe probably a significant portion of engagement on, on places like Twitter and Facebook as well. And so by not taking care of that problem before now, now we have an even larger problem with uh, misinformation and particularly health or medical misinformation, which, you know, people are dying. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I think that's, that's a really important thing to think about. Like, oh, before it was just like people talking crazy, so to speak, about politics, and right? We'll let them argue. But now it's about, you know, whether or not you should go outside, whether or not, you know, touching people, whether or not, you know, washing hands is a real thing, whether or not, like, if I get corona, I get corona and I'll be okay. You know, whether or not if I'm in the uh, 20 to 40 AIDS group, it's really going to affect me or not. That's like serious stuff. And because there was a failure before, the failure has just amplified now. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the harms are, are real. They're often immediate uh, and they're indisputable, which is uh, different than some of the other ways. So, you know, when, when marginalized populations are saying they're being harmed by Facebook or Twitter, you know, they're, that's, companies have easily, I shouldn't, they've readily dismissed that mm-hmm. uh, or said that they're working on it, you know. And in a lot of cases, uh, I mean, that question of harm often comes up on platforms or on technological kind of ramifications. But the harm of, of mis- and disinformation on and the virus is death and it might not be that long from now. And mm-hmm. so it's really much harder to call that into question than, than some of these other things, which are no less serious, and I don't mean to diminish them, but I mean, um, when there's bodies piling up, you can't say, well, were they really harmed? 
um, in the ways that uh, I think platforms have done um, already um, yeah, in the past. I think you both raise really important points. I mean, particularly about the content moderators, about what distinguishes um, this moment from before. I, you know, I think that for a lot of people who aren't immersed in the data policy tech surveillance space prior to COVID-19, they might not have a sense of, you know, kind of these battles around Facebook and mis- and disinformation that, that you guys have mentioned. Um, and I think that the, there's definitely a sense of like the stakes have changed when this misinformation can cause someone's death. Could you discuss a little bit, do you think there's a change in pace? Like how would you distinguish what's different now, even in the last two weeks um, versus kind of all the foundation that was just laid before even three months ago? What, what, has, what has changed in the pace? I think uh, one significant thing is like everybody's, so because so many people are at home <laughs> now, so many people, more people are on social media all at the same time. Um, I think just the scale of the number of people that have ramped up that are in, in the conversation now that are sharing or resharing is a huge, is a significant thing. Um, so people don't always read, people don't always vet, they do share a whole lot. And so if, I am now online and now 10 of my friends are also online and then 10 of their friends are also online. This is a, a much larger network than if I had missed it, even with Twitter's like algorithm of things you've missed, right? Even if, if I had missed it, I probably would have missed it. But now because I'm online, I think there's higher possibility that I may see this, you know, uh, false information. I think that is a significant thing that I don't know if a lot of people are talking about more. I think people are talking about like, oh, there's so many more people online that the telecom companies need to make sure their infrastructure um, can, can hold all these people or maybe you all should stop streaming because um, it's taking up so much bandwidth and we don't have a lot of bandwidth. But also think about because there's so many more people on all at the same time, this kind of disinformation, misinformation is now reaching more people all at once before it's vetted, right? Before there's Snopes or before there's a news um, report to come out to say, uh, no, y'all, this is wrong, right? I think that's a really important thing to, to think about. Yeah, um, I think those are really good points. And just to to mirror what what Jasmine said, uh, I think there's this uh, kind of often there's this refrain that Twitter and Facebook and things like that aren't real life, you know, in quotation marks. Uh, but uh, I never believed that was true. Mm. But it's certainly not true now, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Because it, you, I, I mean, I don't know how other people are are managing. Uh, what their coping strategies are or anything like that. But I imagine that there are many people who are operating in the same way I am, which is that uh, I'm checking things really often uh, because things are changing at such a, a rapid pace. And this is kind of how people are experiencing life is through these, um, through these technologies. 
and uh, so it's it's a little bit harder to dismiss uh, the effects. You know, I think the the networking that that Jasmine alluded to is important. But the other thing is, I think that the companies, you know, so Zuckerberg when he testified uh, a few months ago, uh, maybe a year ago or something like that, one of the things he promised was was talking about uh, how his algorithms were going to fix everything. Um, and I think that a, a thing also to think about when we think about kind of the pace or how this has changed is this has allowed tech companies to uh, experiment, for lack of a better word, uh, to move fast and break things, uh, mm. you know, to borrow their phrase, in a way they wouldn't have been allowed to uh, in normal times. So um, just hypothetically, if, uh, you know, um, Zuckerberg in, in regular times had said, we fired all of our commercial content moderators and sent them home. Uh, we're going to purely <laughs> algorithmic content moderation. Um, I don't think that would look the same or that would be received the same as it is uh, being received now. Uh, and so... A thing that they probably wanted to do all along is now a thing that they're allowed to do at a rapid pace and without any blowback because it seems like the uh, sensible and safe thing to do. Um, you know, and I can't speculate on on sort of. Uh, well, let me just say that I, I I think it's a thing that they wanted to do all along. I think Zuckerberg was pretty clear about that, um, but this situation allows them to do that. And so the ways that the platforms are going to stop working or stop working in the ways that we're accustomed to, uh, they're not going to be, they'll be probably accepted a little bit more than they would be if um, these companies came out and said, hey, we just fired all these people. Um, and so I think that's something to, to consider because, again, this is how even if we think about how in terms of emergency response or getting information out, um, uh, municipalities and, and governments are using these platforms. And so it's not something that people do on the side or some kind of triviality that, I mean, it's the way people are getting um, imperative and, and sometimes life-saving or life-altering information. And to have them engage in this kind of grand experiment at the same time um, as this is happening, uh, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm worried about what that's going to look like. Um, and I was also wondering, could you talk either of you a little bit about what does it mean that universities kind of globally are largely moving to Zoom? Um, and that, you know, there's all these people now on social media, but that largely people are communicating almost exclusively on these proprietary platforms and what does that mean for data governance and you know how how should we or can we intervene in any of the terms of those relationships does that make sense i mean to go first jasmine okay go for uh, it oh okay so uh, a thing that I'm heavily invested in is, is educational technologies and, and privacy and surveillance in that space. And, and again, uh, you know, I, I, I am worried and, and so far it's sort of proven true 
that, that fear has been realized in some senses about the ways that, that these companies are going to use this as an opportunity uh, to turn, turn crisis into profit. Um, and so a, a, like a real a quick example is the use of Zoom. And so now everyone is saying, well, we'll just hold our classes on Zoom. And businesses are using Zoom more than ever. And, and colleges want to have synchronous classes with Zoom and things like that. Well, so a lot of interesting stuff has come out because a lot of people had not looked at Zoom's privacy policies uh, or how Zoom works in terms of, uh, for instance, the moderator of Zoom. Zoom has some kind of built-in attention detection uh, feature uh, where the moderator of a Zoom room can look and see if people who are in that meeting, if they have Zoom as their primary screen, you know, if they're paying attention. Um, and Zoom had this sort of what they thought was cutesy uh, um, Q&A in their terms of service about whether or not they sell data. And it said something to the extent of, well, it depends on what you mean by sell. Uh, and so um, because uh, institutions and individuals haven't had the time to vet these things, I mean, it's an emergency situation. Haven't had the time to vet products like these, look at privacy policies, think about what that means for institutions, um, for their students, for you know, marginalized students, vulnerable communities, uh, or even to think about who has access to these things, you know, what it means to have broadband access or uh, a laptop uh, and who doesn't have those things. Those are all questions that I, I Unfortunately, I don't think a lot of institutions have been thinking about those things. But in the situation we're in, where uh, people are forced to move quickly, uh, it's not a time to ruminate. And so people are being forced onto these platforms without the ability to think about that stuff. And uh, I think that's really uh, unfortunate. Uh, and I mean, lastly, I, I worry that, that this time will be used as some kind of metric so uh, again, whatever it looks like on the other side, and I don't, I don't mean to be flippant about that. I don't know if I'll see the other side or, or who will, but whatever it looks like on the other side, will people look back, will people in power, people who make decisions at say colleges look back and say, well, we, everyone's on Zoom anyway now already, so let's just keep doing that. Or we did this invasive thing, this invasive data grabbing thing, We've been doing it. We did it throughout the pandemic. So let's just keep doing that. Um, and so I, I, that's a thing I hope doesn't happen. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think I think what Chris said is is really important. And I would I would add that we saw some of this um, quite a few years ago when a lot of colleges moved to using Google as an infrastructure for things like email. And, you know, everybody got a Google uh, Drive account connected to their email and you may log in through like the Google portal to access your college, college related um, email. And the question was, well, is Google doing to college um, and university emails what it does to it's regular emails, which at that time was scanning <laughs> through mm -hmm. uh, email. And what, what happens with, you know, really um, 
confidential stuff? Is Does Google know? And these are questions that we kind of got answered to, but not really. And there was kind of some term changes, but, you know, how do you know kind of things. And now with Zoom, I, I think it's just a repeat. But I think the larger issue is kind of the seeding by governments, what I'm thinking about, public university, and uh, even private universities, which I don't know, I'll connect those to civil society organizations, seeding of like infrastructural responsibilities to tech firms, right? So tech firms may have the money, they may have some, some of the, uh, bec and because they have, they have money, they may have more um, workers who are able to do things quicker and more expertise. But what they don't have necessarily all the time is the ethos or the motivation to be working in the public good and, and actually also answering what the public good actually means. And so by ceding responsibility for infrastructure and for these kind of uh, responsibilities to tech companies, you're taking away one um, kind of governance by people related to these very important functions of, of uh, you know, government, public government, uh, in the case of a university, you're ceding control away from the internal governance structures of the university, whether that's faculty and staff governance, um, whether it's actually allowing students to have a say, um, telling even parents and the general public about what's actually happening with the use of certain technologies and technological decisions, which which may or may not affect a university's decisions, but man, they should be able to hear about it from their, quite frankly, constituents. And then also thinking about, again, what, what happens to that data? How's it gonna be used? Is it gonna be forever connected to uh, the people? Um, can, uh, will this data, follow them, you know, those kinds of things. And how is it going to be used? Can, are people going to be making inferences related to things like attention, as Chris mentioned, or things like for faculty members and staff members, how well you teach, right? So I think these are important kinds of questions that we have absolutely no idea about. And um, in the middle of a crisis is probably not the time to be <laughs> thinking about them yeah let me if i if i can i just want to bounce off of, of what um, jasmine said so a lot of faculty don't teach online because of some of these questions about surveillance both of their students and of them uh you know for uh, reasons of um you know uh academic freedom uh things like that to protect vulnerable students to not have inferences made about their teaching or their pedagogy or you know what kind of student is worthy or, or things like that. So a lot of students have or a lot of students and uh, instructors and professors have resisted going online uh, for these reasons and now everyone's online um, and there's no choice at this moment. And so I think that's a really important thing that, that Jasmine brought up is that um, I, in a lot of ways and again um, in a larger sense, it, it, you know, it is, it is a pandemic. And so we operate uh, in the ways that we have to, to survive. 
but I do think it's really important to keep in mind uh, our, our ideas about um, our rights and, and privacy and human rights and things like that, because um, those things might have been, they're not easily gained. And so uh, to, get, to give them up right now um, with the assumption that we're just going to kind of snap back, I think is the wrong way to think about it. Um, and so with, all, if, with everyone kind of being forced online, um, the people who resisted that, uh, you know, what is it going to look like after, uh, you know, like when we're able to return, say, to classrooms and things like that? Um, and how might that be used against them? Or, or even the, the fact that they did go online um, might be used to say, well, now everyone's got to do it or this is the way we're doing it moving forward. Um, Jasmine said earlier that people are going online in search of information and in search of hope. I also think people are looking for leadership. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, as somebody who's thought a lot about like data literacy, working with both marginalized groups and, you know, within academia, people in activist organizations, I'm kind of like scrutinizing myself and the ways in which maybe I did not prepare people for this reality. Um, I think that the old critique about techno dystopian seems a little ironic at this point. Um, but, you know, I don't think any of us have the solution, but can you guys kind of um, brainstorm or share kind of what you're thinking as far as what does resistance look like um, while we're all tweeting in our houses and kind of being socially distanced because we have to? What does it look like to keep in mind these, you know, values that you said, Chris, privacy, human rights, knowing that they are not easily gained, but yet people are afraid and alone and, you know, have their smartphones. <laughs> I mean, the, the, that is such a tough question and I, I don't know the answer. Uh, I think one of the things I've tried to kind of model anyway it's just awareness. Um, and, and, you know, I think, I mean, one of the things, the, 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 the same thing that makes these companies often very terrible um, is the, the reason that they're kind of doing a job we need uh, right now is their affordances in terms of scope and scale and reach and things like that. You know, I mean, I don't know what, what's happening on Mastodon right now. You know, I mean... <laughs> Like, I don't, um, I, I don't know. Um, but if I want to know something, I mean, um, I'm probably, uh, if I want to know something immediately or, or soon after it happens, um, Twitter is a place that's very good for that uh, at this moment. Um, so what I've tried to model and um, is, uh, you know, awareness, but also kind of using my uh, platform, you know, so people have reached out to me um, and said, hey, can you can you amplify this, you know, um, so there's like a organization that does this um, for uh, uh, for immigrants or there's there's this um, group that that needs funding. Can you amplify this? And so that I think is what I've tried to do as well, um, which is, again, like a, a thing that's possible right now, because and to some extent, I mean, as much as I have a, a love-hate, mostly hate relationship with the internet, it's <laughs> kind of doing what it's supposed to do right now. Um, 
so that I mean I think that's that's one aspect or a couple aspects. Jasmine, would you like to weigh in on that? Sure. I mean, I think what Chris said is really important um, about awareness. I also think so. Many of the issues that we're seeing right now are are not even based in the online. It's it's based in our already there social issues, um, and and then amplified with technology. So I think one of the really important things that people are doing right now that people were quite frankly doing before is mutual aid. And mutual aid can look like something like uh, spreading awareness like Chris was talking about, but also correcting BS online. I I wouldn't take that on as a a full-time job at all because (laughs) there's so much, but like when you have the doctors um, and the the PhDs correcting, um, you know, disinformation, misinformation and campaigns. And that's shared. I think that's really important. Other mutual aid kinds of things like the uh, um, posting of even PDFs online related to, you know, what they're doing, like 3D printing now for ventilators. But to... uh, even have that ability to to 3D print some of those valves, they needed the like books, right? So there was a guy who was putting the PDFs of the books online so that others could print. And he's been threatened with a lawsuit, right? For, for intellectual property reasons, but the, the feeling is like, you know, in a pandemic, you know, I'll, I'll chance it. Right. So mutual aid kinds of things. We don't even have to go to that extreme. Um, mutual aid kinds of things where it's uh, the the um, analog version is writing notes um, and paste it, you know, putting them on your neighbor's porches like, hey, if you need me to pick up something for you at the grocery store, um, those kinds of things are really important. Um Mutual aid like the libraries, even if they're closing, leaving their Wi-Fi on and the and the passwords unlocked, that's really important since kids are out of school and they still have homework, right? So I think mutual aid is going to be one of the things that really is going to be important and, and move us through. And, and also I would say like, so here's the thing, we talk about surveillance and surveillance has been with us a long time. The CDC does surveillance, and this is the kind of surveillance that we consider kind of acceptable, right? So we want the Centers for Disease Control to control disease. We want to know when there is a, a pocket of TB that has sprung up or, or there is a community that's all getting sick with cancer. And we want to know like what that's about. What, what the problem is now is the sheer scale of surveillance and the amount of detail and then what's being done with that data um, and the governance issues with it. So even while we uh, um, allow for certain things during a pandemic and we allow for certain things even before a pandemic, we have no idea the sheer scale and volume of data that'll be collected and how it'll be used. And so I think will be crucial during this time is that while our um, legislators are trying to come up with aid packages, 
that they also include really important um, data and uh, technology kind of based stipulations related to what tech companies are doing right now. What kind of things we're going to ban? How we're going to protect people as well um, in their their proposed bills? And and um, one other thing I would add, uh, you know, and and I mean, in sports they call this taking somebody's number. You know, like um, when I look at what Amazon's doing, you know, what Whole Foods is doing, like how some of these companies are acting right now. Uh, which is not in any way different from the way they have been acting, you know, mind you, but it is on display for the world to see, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so and I just read a story the other day about Amazon drivers being given one single um, mm-hmm. disinfecting wipe to wipe down their whole truck. You know, there's been, um, I mean, yeah, the, the workers thought it was, they thought the guy was joking too, you know, their supervisor was joking too. <laughs> Uh, we see that, you know, the people who are holding the society up are people at restaurants, bars, grocery stores, mm-hmm. you know, sanitation. Um, so to see them, you know, people who are often referred to as un- people who are disrespectful, care, don't get, you know, sick days, all these things like we need to be taking the numbers of these companies and and hold them accountable not only for how they behaved uh during a crisis but how they're going to behave moving forward right so for instance like we need to have a real conversation about amazon Mm. um you know and we have for a long time but i think now is a good time to for everybody to see what a terrible um that it's a thing that shouldn't exist i mean i'll just be blunt about that like amazon should not exist um, so not in the form that it does. Uh, and I think things like that are on display right now. Um, and so we need to be taking these companies numbers and, and when, again, and I, and I don't, and again, I, I don't want to diminish this at all. Like, um, but at some point in the future, we need to, um, hold these, th- uh, to think about what it means to, in a society to move forward, um, when we have these behemoths that just grind people to dust, right, and keep on rolling. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're almost at the hour mark, and in total pandemic honesty, the bribes that I offered my five children to stay silent in the other room um, are waning in efficacy. Uh, but I really appreciate this conversation, and I just had like some brief logistic questions. So one is if you guys could share maybe anyone you're following, reading, something you're watching right now. I mean, it could be directly around surveillance or... Kafka or whatever it is that we could share in the show notes. And then also in the spirit of helping people vet information, I'm going to do a much more extended show notes as typical for a podcast. So I've been taking notes and I'll share with you all the articles that you mentioned. And if I cannot find the links, I'll reach out to you like the real time thermal imaging company who's claiming they can detect the virus just so that people can uh, reference and verify all the things that we mentioned. But if we can end with any last comments you want to make and then something that you're reading or watching could be any format that you want to share with people. Uh, um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think uh, now's the time. Um, 
it's a good time to read uh, Tim Mon's Infinite Detail and, and Sarah Roberts' Behind the Screen. Uh, uh, the, Tim's book is, uh, is, is fiction, or it was supposed to be fiction. Um, and uh, Sarah's book is about commercial content moderators. Uh, other than that, I'm just kind of doing stuff to distract myself. I mean, video games and, and comedy shows and things like that. <laughs> so um, I think a good book to be reading right now um, is Dark Matters by Simone Brong. Uh, Oof, yeah. always a good book to read. Always, always a good Sorry. book to read. <laughs> no, and particularly we're talking about... Uh, Black and Brown People and Surveillance. Another good book is a newer book by uh, Jathan Sadowski called Too Smart. Um, and basically getting into this, this surveillance uh, infrastructure and apparatus that has grown up or we've allowed to grown up. As far as what I'm watching, it, it is like Chris, mostly like uh, uh, kind of new stuff the second season of kingdom is out <laughs> on netflix so checking that out yeah probably inappropriate during this time <laughs> <laughs> it's the last couple episodes of uh, the magicians uh jasmine oh yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> i've been re-watching atlanta which initially oh. was escapist but then i was like this is so real atlanta is so good on just yeah. like every level, it's very like black, but the blues and guitar. It's like everything. I really love yes, that show. Yeah. Craft That's it. a good call. Yes. And then prior to Corona, I love this week in virology podcast Twiv, um, oh, wow. but they're fantastic and actually a really excellent resource for people who want basically an info dump on what's going on around coronavirus and they go through really extensive question and answers of letters that people send in asking and getting report backs from Wuhan um, and they're like two hour episodes so they're kind of long but they are a really great set of people who are experts in the field and they've been doing the podcast for now I want to say like four or five years um, so yeah those are my two recommendations excellent thank you cool yeah well thank you for making the time guys and I will Hopefully, we'll be releasing this next week, um, and I'll definitely be on the Columbia website, and we just had meetings with Spotify and, and Sirius this week to see if one of them will partner with us, but we're, I mean, everything is, like, happening on the fly right now, so we're working on it. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate you yeah. uh, inviting me. Yes, thank right, you. Cool. Dope. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, and also send me, email me your uh, social media, anything that you would like me to link in there that references to your work or something you're interested in. I'll, I'll, I'll plug all that in. Right, okay. Cool. Excellent. All right. Great. Thanks. Talk to you guys Thank later. You. All right. Thank you. Take care.